0: Uh, we're doing weekly in the pulpit, the intersection of hermeneutics and the regular preparation of a specific message. And uh, on this, you can see there are three Latin words on your paper there. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw this from Luther. To be honest, one of the, one of the most helpful things I've found in, in, in terms of thinking about the how, how do I approach the scriptures, and you've already seen this and of so what I've been talking about, is from, is from a little article by Luther where he talks about oratio, Meditatio and Tentatio. And I, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly explain it, and then I have a paper that I've writ- written to be read orally. It's not a, a paper to be read as an article, but it's written to be presented. And I'm, I, it's, it's not that long, and I think I'm going I'm to read it to you. We'll see how that works. If it's totally boring, then we'll just kill it. It's dangerous to do that after lunch. I'm a little scared. But uh, Aratio is... Uh, is latin for prayer meditatio is latin for meditation again uh this is luther's terminology i've never actually formally studied latin temptation or trial uh but now my daughter in in her christian school is learning latin so i'm challenged to have to learn it along with her to it's, it's good the other day she started praying they memorized this prayer in latin she started praying she said can i pray for supper oh okay she prays, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. And we're all like, oh, "Sweet, so you've got to translate that for the rest of the family. So, but the, uh, and Luther, I'm going to read to you about this. But Luther, he says, uh, this is, he says, do you want to be a theologian? And when he says theologian, someone who thinks and writes about God accurately and thoughtfully. He says Psalm 119 is the model for a theologian. And he takes the verses and he shows over and over again how David cries out in prayer that God would give him understanding of his word. And then he talks over and over again how, how the psalmist meditates. And when we think meditation, unfortunately that word is ruined in our language, isn't it? We think of someone sitting cross-legged with like a... A, you know, in a some kind of Zen Yoda sort of thing, uh, yoga something. But but he's thinking about meditation. He's like, not, he's focusing all your creative and mental energies, singing, thinking about, talking about. So the word is is alive and active in our thoughts and creative energies. He's like, this is the way that we think about, you know, that the, we ask God to help. Then we read the word, and then we, we think about it, talk about it, we sing about it, we pray about it, we meditate on it. The, the psalmist gives us that, that, that pattern. And then I think this is one of the more insightful things in the article. is like, and then God takes what is theoretical to us, and he makes it real. Through the difficulties of life, <laughs> and you're like that. That, it, and however painful that is, that's one of the themes of Scripture. If you look in Romans chapter five, First Peter chapter one, James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He says it's through those. He says, look at Psalm 119 over and over again. David is calling out in sickness. David is attacked by enemies. David is slandered by other people. He's like, it's in those trials of life that you see how true and real the gospel is and the promises and comfort of God. He's like, that's, that's where you become... A, the theoretical knowledge becomes real and you become a real theologian. It's like the velveteen rabbit, right? Who's worn to pieces by the children holding him. Luther didn't refer to the velveteen rabbit, right? Luther refers to the... You know, Luther, if you know anything about the Reformation, was, was attacked by, by, the, by the Pope and by the Papists. He called them the Papists, the Popals, emissaries. He says, I have so much to thank my Papal, the Papists, for... Because they've harried and harassed me to the point that they've made me a relatively decent theologian. And and he, he, he recognizes that his enemies, though they did not intend to, under the instrument of God, were, were, were a means of... And, and we had someone preach in chapel this last week at Southern's Chapel, Ryan Fullerton. And he's a pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, a traditional Baptist church. He's... he's uh, he's been past right now there for probably 10 year 10 years and he's really led it in a good do- direction it's in the inner city and they really care for the poor and do other things but his about about 5 or 6 years ago his wife in the final stages of her pregnancy had a very serious form of breast cancer aggressive dangerous breast cancer and so they had to you know i think they had to have the baby early and then immediately treat his wife and he was you know, she was sick, and he was staying up late, feeding children, and trying to be a pastor. And all. it was a horrible time from a human perspective. And he said that he was sharing in in chapel. He said, and then and then uh, a lady in his church came up to him and said, "Pastor, your preaching is getting a lot better." And he said it. It, it reminded me. You know, why was that? It was because in the str- struggle struggle of life. The reality of the gospel and him clinging to the promises of God—it became very real through his personhood, you know. And so he's like, he he challenged the, the congregation. I think very along the lines of Luther, he said, "Whatever that trial is that you think is holding you back in your ministry, that's probably what's pushing you forward. Like whether it's a whether it's a family member that's not supportive, or whether it's a congregation. He's like that that trial is actually the means God is using to." make you humble, and make the gospel real through your lives. Embrace embrace, embrace that as God's sovereign um, um, bringing of difficulty or allowing of difficulty to, to shape us more into the image of Christ. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, the title of the paper, again, I'm just going to, this is just sort of a, we'll try this, okay? It's called Luther's Instructions for Studying Theology as a Biblical Hermeneutical Method. It's an oral address I wrote for a, professional society says never in the history of the church have so many good hermeneutics texts been available. Of course, never in the history of the church have so many bad hermeneutics texts been in print as well. Still evangelicals have little to complain about. If we've not learned to read the Bible for all it's worth, right? That's the title of a famous book. We have hopefully at least come to a basic guide for interpreting the Bible, which is the name of another book. Though current evangelical hermeneutics texts vary in strength as a whole, they are excellent in defending authorial intent, which is what I've tried to talk about today. Is We try to seek what is the inspired author's meaning, authorial intent, providing a history of biblical interpretation in the church, giving rules for determining various literary genres, and enumerating principles for interpreting those genres. With so many excellent texts on biblical interpretation available, it is striking how few hermeneutically sound sermons one hears. Where is the clarity and power of sound biblical interpretation manifested in pulpits, popular Christian literature, and Sunday school classes. Is something lacking? So the problem is lots of good hermeneutics texts, lots of good tools available, but where, where's the follow-through in the Sunday school literature that, that applies that and gives that? Where are the sermons that, that overflow with that? And I'm thinking Martin Luther helps us here. Martin Luther, though he wrote nearly 500 years ago, provides some guidance on this subject in the preface to the Wittenberg edition of his German writings. Indeed, if the sole benefit of this paper is to serve as a goad so that you, the listener, find and read the short preface yourself, your time will be well spent, I believe. Luther's memorable style of expression undoubtedly exceeds the quality of my writing, and thus I point you to it ad fontes, as the Reformers say, right to the source. Yet with faltering lips, I hope to summarize faithfully and apply some of Luther's thoughts to our current setting." In his preface, Luther gives a three-part present prescription for theological study, which I think provides the missing ingredients in much current evangelical hermeneutical instruction. This three-step method is oratio, meditatio, and tentatio, prayer, meditation, and trial. These elements, I believe, are crucial to faithful biblical reflection, but are often neglected in current discussion. In this paper, I will proceed by looking at the basis for Luther's theological prescription— That is, why does he see prayer, meditation, and trials as the sine qua non? That is, the the indispensable element of true theological study. Then we will examine each of his three recommended elements in turn. And finally, I'll make some concluding remarks. Okay, so first first section here. Why does Luther give this prescription, Luther's basis for his prescription? Luther rather confidently commends his three-step method for theological study. In fact, he claims this. Listen to this claim. If you keep to this method of study, you will become so learned that you yourself could write books just as good as those of the church fathers and church councils. It's like it's a very bold claim. Uh, It sounds like a late night TV commercial, right? For only 1999 and Genzu knives, you too could write uh, books as good as the church councils. On what basis can Luther make such an audacious claim for his prescribed method of study? He can make such a claim because he does not believe a human authority stands behind the prescription, but a divine one. Luther derives his method from Psalm 119, the lengthiest psalm in the canon, as you know. Luther notes that throughout the psalm, David repeatedly mentions three things. Number one, David cries out to God for understanding of his word, prayer. Number two, David thinks on, he recites, he sings. He variously ruminates on God's word as he seeks to understand and apply it, meditation. And number three, David is repeatedly oppressed by enemies and difficulties, trial. And in fact, in my, in my introductory hermeneutics class, one of the assignments is I, I have them take Psalm 119, and they have to take three sheets of paper and title it Prayer, Meditation, and Trial, and put all the verses from Psalm 119 under Those three headings. Now, usually there's some initial resistance to this. Students are like, "I don't want to do that," you know. But then the reaction has been, "I'm glad you made me do that because I like saw how it was there." You know, when after you list fifty verses, you're like, "Wow." He really does pray a lot for understanding the psalm. Or wow, he he really does go through a lot of difficulties. Oh so, wow, he he does really sing and recite and meditate on the scripture all the time. And just that, it's one thing for me to tell you this, and you're like, oh, maybe. It's another thing if you go through the psalm and you're like, wow, it, that is a huge theme. That is the psalm about the word of God. And so, uh, and and when you when you see those, then 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 I think there's a there's a there's a response in the in the believing Christian that says. That's that's what I need to do, too. And it it also, to be honest, for me, when I'm preparing my sermon and those inevitable, inevitable difficulties hit, whether it's, you know, the kid getting a stomach virus or whether it's a church discipline issue that someone is suddenly leaving their husband and you're called into it, then then I'm able to hear hear that. I I recognize that this is going on and I'm I'm like, this is going to help me understand this passage better. I'm going to be a more faithful preacher. I'm going to understand when I give application to this, I'm going to understand where people are in the church better because of what's going on right now. And so it makes me more sympathetic. It's not like, I need to be working on my sermon. Why is this going on right now? It's like this is part of the preparation of my sermon under God's sovereignty, that this is going on right now. Okay, a superficial reading of Psalm 119 will quickly note these motifs. For the purposes of this short paper, I'll choose a few examples of each theme. Many more could be listed, and the hearers of this paper are encouraged to search Psalm 119 for themselves. Okay, so first off, we have the prayerful approach, right? So, and I just chose, just randomly went through the first 50 verses and just chose some stuff. Psalm five. David's, David addressing the Lord says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, right? Calling out to God. You'll be glad to know that all these quotations are from the English Standard Version. Okay, they are. Okay, number, uh, Psalm 119.10. David says, "With my whole heart I seek you, Lord. Let me not wander from your commandments." Okay, add in the word "Lord" there, so you'll know who he's addressing. Psalm one nineteen twelve. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Psalm one nineteen seventeen through twenty. De- deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Psalm 119, 34 and following. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So, again, we could go through and, and give 50 more examples of that kind of language. Secondly is the meditative approach. How many of you have ever been exposed to more of a biblical understanding of meditation? Have, have you guys heard Meditating on Scripture? Uh, um, I see some nods. Um, Don Whitney, in his, his good little book on spiritual disciplines, he has a nice chapter on biblical meditation. And if you've never read anything on that, that would be a good one. And he looks back to the Puritans in a very helpful way. He says the, the Puritans talked about, um, I don't know if you, most of us have probably experienced this when we, we're like, okay, I need to pray and we're like and there was nothing there you know it's like you begin you just feel like you're out of gas but the puritans they would usually begin with meditation of scripture and then out of that meditation of scripture would come would flow prayer and that's a much it seems to me a much healthier cuz it, it 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 then then the then you're overflowing rather than just kind of there's an emptiness and you the that god teaches. Teach, we're like little children they need to be taught how to speak to god like you know just like my my two-year-old will repeat what I say. We're like that spiritually and we need the scripture to teach us even how to talk to God that we need to repeat what he said. So Psalm 119 meditation. So here's some of the words of meditation. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I, and I, I, I and during the break, someone kept asking me questions about my church and I'm sorry if I talk too much about my church, but that's my experience. So I have to kind of talk out of it. But, uh, one of the, the main teaching pastor in our church, um, we're doing a survey right now, of the new Testament. So he's, he, we're not doing this right now, but in the past when he would preach through books of the Bible, the first thing he would do is memorize the book. So we preach through James, memorize the book of James. And then, and then the first sermon would be a recitation of the book of James. You just recite it word for word. And I think that's a good visible to people like, man, the pastor, he is soaking in the word of God. So then, when he's riding his—he's a big mountain biker, riding his mountain bike. Uh, he's running. You got the—you swimming. And you, if once you have the word in your head, you can—you can—you can do anything. You can do anything. you know, push the baby, change the diaper, mow the grass. I mean, all the day is your sermon preparation because once you have the word in there, if you're—if you're meditating on it, it—it it, it, it can multiply your sermon preparation time. To, to all those different moments. And I, I even have started doing, taking, when I'm running, I'll have my uh, phone on uh, record audio and I'll be running. I'll be thinking about the text and I'll think of something, <laughs> you know, and I'll record it real quick. Click, do the record a uh, voice clip to listen to later. This, I thought about this with this, you know sermon and the text and then, and then go back to running again. I find that I have a lot of good thoughts when I'm, when I'm running and the, uh, you know, it's good to vary. We it's, it's just, the body was made, I think to, to vary its activities. Uh, so that actually one of the most helpful things I did when I was writing my dissertation was to just to take breaks every 20 minutes, you know, you work and then you just get up and you walk and then you get a fresh idea. You're like, ah, one way I, I made sure that happened was I drank a lot of water and that made sure that I had to leave my office about every 20 or 30 minutes and go down the hall. So, uh, Psalm 119, again, we're talking about meditation. Psalm 119, verses 13 through 16. With my lips. So this is how he's meditating, right? He's not only storing them up in his heart, but he's speaking them. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So think about whether it's someone, I mean, this is someone who's, you know, singing, writing on the wall, w- whatever. You know, whatever fo- focuses your mental and creative energies on that word. Psalm 119, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Finally, we see many mentions of trials and difficulties as well. He says, uh, Psalm 119, "...even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors." Verse 28, "...my soul melts away for sorrow." So he's incurred not only external difficulties, but internal difficulties. "...my soul melts away in- for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word." Verse 41 and 42, "...let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise." Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Last example here, 49 and following. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs. In the house of my sojourning, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. So in all, we have 176 verses, right? In this short survey above, I draw from a, a less than uh, the third of the, of the psalm, uh, from the first third of the psalm. Even from such a superficial analysis, one cannot miss the prominent repetition of prayer, meditation, and trial. In other words, Luther stands on firm evidential grounds in asserting the importance of oratio, meditatio, and tentatio in the psalm. And as the psalm is about God's word and his people's approach to it, the text seems very fitting as a basic hermeneutical or theological model. It may also be of passing interest to note that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned this already, had the custom of requiring incoming theological students to memorize Psalm 119. We'll now look in more detail at the individual components of study recommended by Luther. So we're going to focus in a little bit on each one of these. First, Oratio. In our age of pragmatism, right, this is a pragmatic age we live in. In our age of pragmatism, in which we seek seven simple steps to solve any problem, is it any surprise that we do not want to be told to wait, right? And prayer, which is a waiting and dependence upon God, has become less and less emphasized in biblical study, whether that study be academic or pastoral. A survey of recent hermeneutics textbooks reveals the cursory, very brief, attention given to prayer. Some hermeneutical discussion even implies that prayer biases the student of Scripture towards a preconceived conclusion. There are some people who say, you know, Christians are actually less likely to read the Scripture accurately because they already have their idea about what it's going to say. According to this understanding, I think this is wrong, according to this understanding, it may actually be the non-believer who has the advantage in determining the meaning of Scripture. For he comes with little bias as to what the text will say, for it makes no authoritative claim on his life. Daniel Fuller is the most recognized proponent of this view. You may know Daniel Fuller of Fuller Theological Seminary, though it has other prominent adherents. Fuller, he bifurcates understanding. He cuts in half understanding into cognition and volition. So He's he's like saying, you know, with the human person, you have the will, the volition, and then you have the cognition, the understanding. And he he cuts these in half, and he says, oh, the Spirit only helps in the realm of the will, the desire to do, the the value judgment, this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is false. But in terms of cognitive understanding, he says the Spirit has no role there. I don't think the Scripture supports that kind of cut. And that's that's why he claims non-believers may actually understand the Scriptures better. That is, according to Fuller, there is cognitive understanding and volitional response, and the two are not to be confused. Fuller claims that supernatural intervention only functions on the volitional level. He's saying the Holy Spirit only helps you desire to do the thing, not actually understand what God is saying. In other words, it is only in inculcating a desire to obey the meaning of the text that God supernaturally intervenes in the life of the believer. Thus, determining cognitively the authorial meaning of the text is solely the application of acquired skill and natural reason. It seems striking to me that Fuller, who would likely pray readily for a surgeon's increased skill in an operation, believes that prayers for increased exegetical skill are to no avail. No, an objector will say, what one needs is more lexicons, more grammatical study, more time in the text. Undoubtedly, grammatical study lexicons and time in the text are essential. But is there a place for God's supernatural aid and understanding acquired through prayer and God's gracious intervention? If not, then the traditional Protestant understanding of the illuminating work of the Spirit is incorrect. More common than an outright rejection of the value of prayer, divine aid, in the understanding of the text is brief lip service to the idea. That's what I found much more common. People, people won't say, oh, the Holy Spirit won't help, but they're like, yeah, yeah, you need to pray. Now let's move on to other stuff. With the subsequent wholesale neglect of it, right? There's, there's no, real, no real practice of it. There's no real, real recognition of its value. Where in any modern hermeneutics textbook can be found a thoughtful and biblically-based discussion of how prayer should be practically used in study? By failing to appropriately emphasize and instruct our students in the school of prayer... We are implicitly teaching them not to pray. You don't want to be dramatic and false about this, but I've even thought about in classes, pausing and saying, "Let's get down on our knees," you know, in a class and say, "Let's," like otherwise, rather than just saying, "Of course, we know you're going to pray before you do this." Now, moving on to the to the real work, like saying, "How do we model for students?" You know, in other words, they're like, "Well, what I learned in seminary was pull the books out and look this up and look that up," rather than get down on my knees and, and seek. Jesus' disciples saw the prominence of prayer in his life, and they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Right? They watched Jesus praying. they said, Lord, teach us to pray. When our disciples view our lives, do they ask this question? Or do they ask, how do you read so many books? Or how do you write so much? Or how do you sleep so little? So the questions that people ask us reveal what they perceive to be as the marks of spirituality, I think. Is it any wonder that modern sermons and Christian writings so rarely fail to expose and cast out the spirits of the age, the spirit of the age? Indeed, to commit my own hermeneutical faux pas, this kind can only come out through prayer. Mark nine twenty nine. A brief survey of texts that discuss the doctrine of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit illustrate a lack of clarity and exegetical grounding. So, you guys probably are, are familiar with the doctrine of illumination, the illuminating work of the Spirit. It's the idea that the Spirit help, the Holy Spirit helps us understand and to obey the Scriptures. But there's very, very little clarity of discussion on that. If you look it up, people cite few Scriptures or they just assert it and they, they, they don't explain, explain it well. On the other hand, Fuller's system, while clearly understandable, is biblically unconvincing and dangerous. While I do not personally impugn Fuller or any, any who follow him... I believe his system does encourage an arrogant independence from God in approaching the text. A semi-Pelagian reliance upon one's unaided reason seems to me also dangerous and unbiblical. The doctrine of total depravity teaches us that the entirety of the human person is affected by the fall. Reason, emotions, will... We need the specific and supernatural aid of God to counteract our sinful nature in the regular study of the Scriptures. No one can win a biblical argument by claiming the Spirit told me or I prayed before I wrote this article. However, it appears to me that the biblical evidence presents understanding as an indivisible mixture of both cognitive and volitional elements, an understanding in fallen creatures that can and must be aided by God's special intervention. Does this mean then that non-believers cannot understand some portions of the biblical text? No, but it does mean a believer who seeks God's aid in understanding a text has advantage over a non-believer with equal intellectual gifts, background, and skill. It is not that the Spirit provides additional information that is not in the text, but the Spirit helps in seeing clearly the information there and in weighing the contextual and debated factors. It is as though the Spirit provides the spectacles they bring the picture into clear focus. And in my book, I illustrate this with two, the story of two treasure hunters. So here we're in the Caribbean, and we have two boats. And these guys are both hunting treasure. And we'll put a B over this one for the believer. And uh, a and U uh, over this one for the unbeliever. So we have two treasure hunters. And the, the treasure they're looking for is, is the meaning of the Word of God, the meaning of the Scriptures. And here's the water. And they're both looking down into the water. And they both see something shiny down here. And, and this guy says, they, but there's the evidence before them can both be seen. But the aid of the Spirit, I think, is to see that evidence and weigh it rightly. And be like, I think based on what I'm seeing, that that is sunken treasure. And not only do I see it rightly, but I am compelled then to dive for it right there's not only an assessment this guy says you just see a silvery fish swimming at the bottom of the ocean or you just see a reflection of the sun on the sand no I see sunken treasure and so there's 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 we're both looking at the same thing but we're assessing its value differently I think this came came to bear on me in college when I had a famous religion professor who, who said you know very just bluntly the gospel of John nowhere asserts that Jesus is divine you know and I was like really? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, how can you say that? How can you look at the same piece of literature that I'm looking at and assert that? I mean, I, I just, I, so it, that now that that's not to say that he never has insights into the meaning of the text. You know, he could say, well, Jesus, you know, but, but is, is there some protective and, but of course, this gets messy, right? Because you have two believers up here. The, we'll just make it simple: the Presbyterian and the Baptist, who both have prayed a lot about baptism and both end up on the same view they had to begin with, right? So, 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 who's led by the Spirit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the Baptist, of course. You're right. No, but the but but you can see you can never you can never you can never win an argument saying I prayed a lot more about this than you. I I, I you know. I feel God's Spirit confirming this is the reality to me. You know, you win your argument by looking at the text and say, what does the text say? But I think the Spirit enables us to see more rightly, especially as we submit progressively to the Spirit and listen to Him, to see more rightly the evidence that's before us as it's weighed by by different people. Okay. Hold on. Maybe I'll just... I don't know if I should just highlight the list. Um, uh, I'll read a little bit more. Okay, and and then we won't necessarily read all. Meditation. In addition to being a prayerless people, we in the Western church are a hurried and unreflective folk. So listen to this relates to how you live daily life. We may respond to 40 ministry-related emails in one day and daily read large sections of our Bible. But where is the chewing and the ruminating, the deep reflecting on the text that causes it to sink down into our souls and by God's grace change us? The great scandal of the church, one modern pastor has said, is large buildings filled with undiscipled people. Like skates on a frozen lake, the word has skirted over our minds and hearts with little measurable effect. Luther goes on, to speak about um, the importance of not just taking the word as it first occurs, but thinking it over and over and bringing it to mind and you know, blah, blah, blah. We'll just we'll go on to read. Let me read a section. He says, Thus you see in this same way, in this same psalm, how David constantly boasts that he will talk, meditate, speak, sing, hear, read by day and night and always nothing except God's word and commandments. For God will not give you his spirit without the external word. So take your cue from that his command to write to preach to read to hear to sing to speak outwardly was not given in vain. One way if you if your mind wanders, you know Luther Luther used to talk about his mind wandering. He said, my dog, he had a dog named Teopold. He said when when my dog looks at meat, his every energy is focused on that piece of meat. He said, but when I pray my mind wanders. And 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 uh if, if you, you know, if you one way to counteract that kind of wandering mind is to write. You know, one way to to meditate is by to meditate by writing. To have a journal and say, "I'm going to think about this scripture," and it, it forces you, you 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 as you write to think about it in that way. So training our minds to be, we're so scattered. You know, there's Fox News and there's a thing running across the bottom, and there's someone talking to us, and there's sound here, and we're we're doing checking our email on our. So we're used to, rather than focusing on something and really sinking into it, um, we're, uh, we're not really growing deep in it. Let me read another short quote from Luther here. Um, he listened to his approach to his own books. He said, I would have been quite content to see my books, one and all, remain in obscurity and go by the board. He's like, all the stuff I've written, that's fine, done with it. Among other reasons, I shudder to think of the example I am giving, for I am well aware how little of the church has been profited since they've begun to collect many books and large libraries in addition to and besides the Holy Scriptures, and especially since they have stored up without discrimination all sorts of writings by the church fathers, councils, teachers. Through this practice, not only is precious time lost, which could be used for studying the Scriptures, but in the end, the pure knowledge of the divine word is lost, so the Bible lies forgotten in the dust under the bench as happened to the book of Deuteronomy in the time of the kings of Judah. So the idea that this is consumption with, with secondary literature rather than with the scriptures itself. And I think that um, um, we live in a day where that's even easier and easier to happen. Uh, finally, tentatio. Um, I'll just read a paragraph here and then summarize the rest. Much energy in the Western world is directed at avoiding trials. Nearly one-fifth, right, 20% of the U.S. gross domestic product goes towards insurance, ways of protecting ourselves against unplanned car wrecks, house fires, or medical expenses. Ironically, the very difficulties we seek to insulate ourselves from are often the means God uses to mature us. They are the means, Luther claims, of taking our abstract knowledge of what the Bible says and making it real. I'll just read a couple of his quotes about this. He says, A trial is the touchstone which teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's Word is. Wisdom beyond all wisdom. He goes on to say, As soon as God, God's Word takes root and grows in you, the dev, devil will harass you and will make a real doctor of you. And by his assaults will teach you to seek and love God's Word. He says, I myself, if you will permit me, ...mere mouse dirt to be mingled with pepper. He's saying, I'm just mouse droppings. And deeply indebted to my Papists ...that through the devil's raging... ...they have beaten, oppressed, and distressed me... ...so much, that is to say... ...they have made a fairly good theologian of me... ...which I would not have been otherwise. Okay, I'll read the final paragraph... ...from his, from his discussion... ...and then we'll open it up to, to your discussion. He says, there now... ...with that you have David's rules. If you study hard in accord with his example... Then you will also sing and boast with him in the psalm. You will say, Your law, O Lord, the law of your mouth, is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Also, quote, The commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. And it will be your experience. This is, I love this. It will be your experience if you do what he says. That the books of the fathers, right? Books written about the Bible will taste stale and putrid to you in comparison. It's like that, those other books that just talk about the Bible. They're not going to taste like the Bible. You will not only despise the books written by adversaries, but you, the longer you write and teach, the less you will be pleased with yourself. It's like when you begin to despise your own preaching and teaching and writing. He says, when you have reached this point, then do not be afraid to hope that you have begun to become a, theo- a real theologian. <laughs> That's a good point. It's like when you, when, you, when you see your own stuff and you're like, this is, this is nothing compared to the Scripture, you know. Then, then, then maybe you've begun to become a real theologian. So, All right. I don't know if that was an effective way. We're not going to read anymore. Don't worry if you're like, yeah, I hope he doesn't read anything else to us. We're not going to read anymore. But, uh, I'll, and I'll send a copy of that article because I skipped over portions of it to John, and he can distribute it to you if you want, that essay. Oddly enough, just a little anecdote. I uh, was reading a book by a, a Roman Catholic author called... His name's Michael Casey. He's the head of a, a monastery in Australia. And he was talking about the value of reading the Word and soaking in the Word. And I was like, this, you know, you don't often read a Roman Catholic author talking about the value of Scripture. I'm just going to send this guy an email and encourage him. So I sent him an email. I was like, I read your book. I was reading your book. And... I just am so encouraged that you're talking about reading the scriptures, being the scriptures. I think it's great. You know, Thank you for writing that. So he wrote back, hey, thanks for your note. What, who are you? What do you do? You know, I told him, and, and uh, we started com- conversing and stuff. And I, I, I sent him a copy of this, this, this uh, oral address that I had just written. And he's like, I love it. <laughs> he's like, we're going to publish it in our Benedictine monastic journal. And he published it in a journal that went to all the Benedictine monasteries around the world. <laughs> <laughs> About Luther, oddly enough, you know, and his instructions for studying theology just shocking to me. I mean, I was surprised, but just it was it showed me too the importance of just giving a gracious word where you know where I said, "Hey, I appreciate what you wrote, and it opened up the door, "Hey, who are you? What are you writing and he 's like, oh, "I like that, so maybe you know you yeah well, and i don 't think that 's going to happen. They're hiding yeah, oh the, the monasteries. Yeah. 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 The um, it's uh, there there are some faithful strands in some forms of Catholicism, but unfortunately the, the institution is itself far far astray doctrinally and formally. So all right. Any questions or thoughts on that? Reactions to that? You think Luther got it right? Or is he... Any thoughts? Chris, you just stretching? Okay. Everybody okay? Any thoughts? So I would just encourage you to to do a little self-assessment. I know it's after lunch. We're getting a little sleepy. But do a little self-assessment and say, if if Psalm 119 really does teach prayer, meditation, and embracing those difficulties as instructive of the Word... Where, where am I? Where am I missing that? You know, am I? Am I? Am I? Is is my? Does my approach to preparing messages give enough time for meditation? Or am I like that's my Saturday and then I preach? That doesn't give a whole lot of time for meditation. You know, if you back it up and you give several days to work work it, let it soak and bump around in your head, roll around in your head. Um, also, thinking about new ways of, of meditating, writing, singing, reading, talking about it with others. That kind of stuff.
1: A friend of mine who uh, preaches out of the lectionary, and he's a Baptist. if um, you pick up a book somewhere, I think it's called Countdown to Sunday or something. And mm. The idea that that guy promotes is similar to this second part. What he calls "living with the text." Mm. You know, so when, when you finish your sermon Sunday, Monday morning, when you when you open up your Bible for quiet time or get your yeah, or whatever. I mean, right then you
0: you you begin your reading. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great discipline. And, yeah. And, and his point was, rather than trying to figure out what to say, yeah, live with the text all the week. Yeah. Know what to say. Yeah, that's a. I just repeat that for the recording. That's a good way to describe it. It's in the book. What's the name of the book? I think it's called Countdown to Sunday. Countdown to Sunday. That's a, that's a kind of yeah. Yeah, the idea of living with the text during the week. Very similar to this in the sense that. That you're, you're thinking about it and recognizing the trials and difficulties that come in your life or examples that are thrown your way, uh, illustrations, ministry settings. I mean, um, the last time I preached, there was a lot of stuff uh, hitting the fan, so to speak. With the, uh, I mean, with people in the church, you know, people relation, you know, the wife telling the husband, "I'm going to divorce you," that kind of stuff, and you're like, oh, "This is just so, just draining." You know, to be stuck in this but but then realizing as I was thinking about applications of the text i'm I'm understanding my people by being with them. I know what they i'm knowing I'm hearing the what they what they need to, I'm understanding the the temptations that they're to not believe the goodness of God and his word and and so i i you know so then when i when I'm thinking about the sermon and crafting it, I'm imagining those people hearing it you know and it just helps a lot when it's not and, and you know you guys are in small enough churches this is not a pro- problem I imagine but in these churches where the pastor just sort of gets removed from the congregation he's not spending time with them and he's just be, sort of lowered on the elevator and, and preaches and then goes back up when you're distant from the people how do you know how to, how to relate to them? Jason?
2: That we take to approach um, meditating on, let's say, let's say you're preaching through Philippians, and in your, in your next verse is, "My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in, in Christ Jesus." Um, is there a difference in in how you would approach meditation upon that, uh, as opposed to like I'm going through Genesis right now? Yeah. I think the next my next term is going to be on blood. I just finished Cain and Abel. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, it's so probably probably I'm thinking
0: blood. Yeah. Do you have like three chapters? Yeah, yeah, that's harder, isn't it? Is
2: there a difference in how you would approach your meditation?
0: I think there would have to be unless you you have a very good memory or you have lots of time. Again, repeating it, how do you approach meditation differently for a long narrative text versus, say, short sections of of letters? Because uh, most people, I mean, especially if you're going through large sections, you're not going to have the time to meditate to memorize three chapters of genesis however especially in our technological age it'd be very easy for you to have that downloaded on your iPod or or whatever and when you're in the car listen to those three chapters of genesis in commuting here in oklahoma right you guys drive all over the place listen to that 10 times you know and or more or you know and again when you're doing things like running cutting the grass to have it on headphones and listening to it, thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it would be different. Say it again.
2: Like, I'm thinking if you meditate on one verse in the New Testament, you're thinking about, okay, and my God shall supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And how does it's, it, you know... It's definitely different than taking that and turning every word around in your head, isn't it? Yeah. And and in narrative, generally, you would... you you, we, we generally read through that faster without seeing as tight or important logical connections between words. Um, so yeah, it's gonna, it's, it's obviously gonna differ in that you're gonna, um, you know, and, and there, there are people like Mark Dever who will preach the book of Genesis in one week. You know, they'll be like this week we're preaching the book of Genesis, you know, and I just have one sermon on the book of Genesis and that's, uh, but that's you know that's not wrong but you obviously can't meditate on the text in the same way <laughs> that you could I mean, you take a big
1: principle
0: yeah. you, think? you take like judgment no other. yeah yeah or 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 the basic issue of god is creator and sovereign you know god is creator and sovereign and his savior and we see those already now in him planning salvation genesis 3 and him choosing abraham and promising so and and it is important to recognize that many many people uh, are biblically illiterate, you know, um, uh, I saw a statistic, 55% of American adults could not name the four gospels, you know, so, um, there is a place to do that kind of broad instruction in, in story. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, I think obviously you're not gonna, I mean, I, I, my personal preference is for the shorter sections of text, you know, where you, where you're, you're thinking about you know you don't know, have these 10 verses these 6 verses but but um yeah the the sec- larger sections you just you just kind of have to go about it differently but i do think recording now is a great you know listening to recordings is a great way to do that where we wouldn't be able to memorize the whole text but we could still hear it multiple times throughout the day doing other things any other thoughts questions yeah
1: Yeah. And your own spiritual development, and mm. your own um, skill, in mm. sermon
0: preparation. Yeah. Uh, it would be a bad idea for me to try, to
1: try to preach the whole book of Genesis because I've not been, I've yeah. not been doing that well yeah. for a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Deborah has written the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, that's a good, good observation that we grow into these different styles of preaching. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, other, the flip side, yeah. I probably
1: wouldn't want to preach verse by verse through Romans. Yeah. You know, I, I might do big chunks.
0: Yeah. Uh, big paragraphs. Right? Mm-hmm. I think John Piper is still preaching. The Martin Lloyd Jones approach where you yeah, preach through Romans for like two, 20 years or something. I mean, yeah. <laughs> 20, <laughs> years years. Uh so you have yeah. I think you can go to extremes on yeah. too narrow, too broad, yeah. And recognizing where you're at in your own process, yeah. And your own skill level. Yeah. Uh and also knowing where your people are and what the purpose of it is and, and it, I I think just being aware. You know, yeah. Yeah, I know I, I've not thought about that nearly carefully enough <laughs> you know and there's always there's always, there's always learning no matter what, what stage we are I know I'm acutely aware that I have a lot to learn but whatever stage we're in I think we, we always have a, so like uh, for you but, and we never we've never lived in a day where it's easier like for example you're like I wonder how you do preach just one book a week like that <clears throat> my goodness you could download sermons and listen for a while and be like hmm I think I could do that, or mm, I don't think I want to do that now. You know, so we have a lot of opportunity to to hear. I mean, you can go get Ligon Duncan's all his manuscripts online. I mean, amazing uh, resource. I have used that in the past. I'll prepare my sermon, and then I'll be like, I wonder what Ligon Duncan did with this. He's a he's a PCA pastor who's really good. I try to always do mine all done first. And then look at him just like I would a commentary, because I don't want to be influenced. I Don't want to be like, oh, that's the way I should preach it. Like I want to be like, I want to, I want to be caught like, ooh, maybe I missed that theme, or yeah, yeah, that's helpful way to do it. And that ties in with a question somebody asked me. I want to touch on real I'll get right back to you, Jason. But they said, well, what about if I just pull an illustration from someone else's sermon? I mean, is that pl- I? I don't think that's plagiarism, but I think one thing that you you can do is at the um, one thing we do is at the bottom of our sermon notes, we just have a thing "sources consulted." And then, you, if you have any question, you just list a web page or list a, a commentary. You, I don't think the sermon is not like an academic paper where you footnote stuff. But if you're like, you know, that I feel like I was dependent enough on that, but I just want to, I just want to note it to to honor that person at the bottom of the page or to have a clear conscience and not feel like I'm I'm using someone else's material without noting it. Then then just stick it in that little "sources consulted" and. And, and, you know, then maybe some other people in the church get curious and there's, there's a book that they want to read more about that they're like, oh, look, I'll order that off Amazon and encourage people to be, um, studious.
2: Um, two questions. You mentioned the gentleman who, uh, who memorized the entire book of James and
0: recited yeah. it as the sermon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that I would ever do that, but I just wanted your opinion on, is that a helpful thing to the yeah. congregation? And then my yeah.
2: second Yeah. I'll, I'll study, I usually start with with the text, Yeah. and I, I go to the commentaries Yeah. and then I usually read Lincoln Duncan, yeah. um, Driscoll, Piper,
0: Piper's yeah. except yeah. to see
2: how they approach the text Yeah. yeah. how they approach the story and I,
0: I just kinda of mesh it all meshes together. But yeah. it just helps me to see yeah, yeah. what did you focus yeah. how did you put it together? Is that wrong? Is I don't wrong? think that's wrong. No, I don't think that's wrong. I mean you're just using them Imagine that they were elders in your church, you know, and you'd be like using them as dialogue partners. What would you do? What, would, what did you do in this text? Or there's just like reading a commentary. But I do think personally, and I'm in academia, so I'm conscious of this, right? I'm conscious of realizing that, that um, I, I need to be very, I need to be careful about citing my sources, you know? So I'm more conscious of it than, than maybe someone who's not in academics, but I, I just feel like, well, if there's ever a question, you know, why not just put at the bottom? Consulted these, and if you normally consult the same six or seven web pages, you could just, uh, you know, put put it in there at the at the beginning or the end of the sermon series. In the sermon series, uh, sources I found helpful, and you just cite those. And, and again, if you're. It, it, I don't really I it's a matter I think it's a matter of your own conscience. If you're like, "Hey, I just pulled a little wording here and I pulled an example here." I don't think that that's I mean, it's it's up to it's up to you in that situation. I don't think it's like, "Ooh, you know, you're you're lying by not saying that." I mean, that's that's not. And I think I think um if you ask a cross section of pastors, um there'd be there'd be differences of opinion about how much you could borrow examples and still be and still not sight the thing. Um, I've heard I've heard the quotation. I don't know if it's true. Rick Warren said, "If my bullet fits in your gun, shoot it." Adrian Has anyone Rogers ever heard? Th- age, Who did? Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers. A- and yet, at the same time, um, why why is there shame in, in preaching a plagiarized sermon? Because there obviously is. Because people, when they're caught, they usually lie about it. Right, if they were like, "Yeah, I preached a sermon," who cares? That's not what the reaction usually is. It's I've heard interesting excuses. Is there
2: a danger in wanting to be too fresh? I mean, in
0: going the other way, and um, because I mean, if I read that yeah. many guys, yeah. I don't think if I don't do what any of them did, yeah. You know, I'm kind of <laughs> stuck. Well, you know, I do. I do think that all if you know, there's there's a, there's dozens of books out there about doing exegesis, right? Which you are talking about doing exegesis is careful study of the text. And almost all of those books strongly urge you not to consult the commentaries until you've actually done a lot of work on your own because they, they, do, they do influence you a lot. And so, I mean, I would say, you know, you, you, know, you know, I don't know your situation, but based on what you said, I'd say, why don't you one week wait till the very end to look at those, hold off. And see how it feels then at the end. How, how's the what's the different feel? Do you feel like you own the text more? Or you I w- I would feel like I owned it more. Like hey, this I've been in this baby. I'm not just taking somebody I'm not driving bar in somebody else's car. You know, like I'm and, and then and then you're in a position where you're like, hey, I think that's good or oh again, it's more of a it's more of a dialogue partner rather than a formative shaping, you know, of the of the thing. But um, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do to do that. I mean people have their own systems. So maybe your your way is gonna work for you and that's okay. That's good. That sounds very relativistic, doesn't it? Postmodern. But I, I don't I mean I, if someone told me, yeah, I like to read all the commentaries first, I'd be like, Well I wouldn't do that, but I can't tell you that's morally wrong, you know, but it's 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 uh I think it, it, it will be hard to hear the text freshly, you know. And and I try to spend time in the text in the in the in the original Greek. You know, if I'm preaching for the New Testament, I try to I try to to, to really, you know, of course that's my discipline. But I, I try to try to soak in it and, and just just be be there, live in the text. This is the most helpful thing I tell my students. The most helpful thing for me is is being in the text for a long period of time. And, and you'd be surprising how, I mean, it is surprising. You, you read a lot of commentaries and, and, and other people's sermons, how they skim over sometimes very critical issues and, just, I mean, and just ignore them. So, all right. Anything else before we take a little snack break? What about the memorization? Oh, um, well, I will say the interesting thing about, about the pastor who does that, the main teaching pastor, he, ha- he has his undergraduate degree in drama. So he's good at it. Um, if I, I don't think I could pull it off. But he's dramatic, you know. It's like if you've ever seen someone. Has any, have you ever seen Bruce Kuhn Anyone ever seen him? He's uh, he works for University Press. He used to be an actor on on Broadway, and he he acts. He does the Book of Luke, and I mean, you're in the Book of Luke when he's doing it. You know, he moves around the stage. It's very, you know, word for word Luke, but it's you're, It's very, very it seizes you, and so. Daniel's not that good, but he's he's good at it. So, but And when he did Romans, he broke it up into smaller chunks. So he would do three chapters. He'd recite three chapters. And then the next few months, he'd preach through those three chapters. Then he'd recite the next three chapters. Then he'd preach through those three chapters. So that's what, you know, it could work or it could not. But for me, I thought it was good because it, it valued... Um, it, well, I would, I would, I would assign him that. I would say, if you're going to continue, there you go. Next sermon,
2: maybe somebody should come around and summarize those three chapters of the flood, and then have us read for Sunday. I'm wanting to do Ezekiel. You know, one of the
0: What's that diversion. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So when they come together for
0: worship, uh, yeah. that the Word of God should be central, and yeah. we almost always assume that that means the preaching of the Word of yeah. is central, rather than it's simply simple. the reading. The yeah, yeah. And you know, so Paul called yeah. Timothy to dedicate himself to the public reading yeah. of the Word, and, and we see huge um, places in Scripture where
1: Scripture is just read. Yeah. It's not, not, not expounded. Just sure. Just and that's been a really challenging thing to me to think about integrating that into worship.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, I heard years or read a scripture and then, you know in a Baptist tradition, we don't normally do this.
1: I think you did it last yeah. Time. Yeah. and just say again this is the word. Yeah.
0: Of the yeah. Lord. We do, we we do that at at our church each and, week. And yeah. 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 It's it's shocking, isn't it, when you go to liberal churches and, and you know, Catholic churches that through other things they don't they just dis- demonstrate they don't believe the word, but they read a lot of it. You know, they, you go to a Baptist church they're like, we believe the Bible is the word of God, but then we never read it like publicly. We have a sermon. And then you go to other churches that functionally don't and they'll read chapters of it. I went to a Catholic funeral. scripture, 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 scripture. I mean more than any protestant funeral I've ever been to scripture tons of scripture now then when they gave an explanation it break your heart yeah it's like we have comfort because this lady was baptized as a baby oh, you know and we have comfort because she took the sacraments oh, we have comfort because we're giving mass today for her soul oh, you feel like you're punching a gut each time it's like oh this is horrible you know this is tragic but then but then the then you have the reading of scripture the word of god the gospel declared right next to that it's, it's really hard to reconcile that N.T. Wright said I, I heard him make a point one time or make a statement that you know, they, they'll spend lots of time reading the word of god and a very small amount of time explaining yeah. it in their services yeah their sermons are a lot shorter yeah and yeah they'll spend hardly you know we'll spend like mm. you know, 45 seconds reading a verse yeah and yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And we actually equate that with the Word of God. Mm, it's really dangerous. Mm, I think uh, that doesn't mean I'm, you know,
0: we're, yeah, yeah. I'm
1: preaching. I'm not saying we
0: shouldn't preach. Yeah, you know, we the Word, uh, but I think there. I think I think it's a really interesting idea to stand up and as your sermon, read a book, or yeah. you know, you wouldn't have to memorize it. You could just read it. Yeah, A.T. Robertson, and or, or or we read the Scripture for the sermon, and then the sermon. Only very remotely relates to the scripture at Robertson said I've heard some sermons that if the the text had the flu the sermon wouldn't have caught it you know like they were that they were that far separated from each other so um, yeah 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 but I think one you know there is a church in Louisville that does that Clifton Baptist they do a lot of lot of readings they'll read I think they read a chap at least a couple maybe a couple of chapters I mean they read a lot. But it is, um, it it doesn't, you know, of course, most of their, many of their people in their church are seminary students, that church is, is, so it it appeals to a certain, someone who already has that commitment and that intellectual, that attention, you know, and churches that are thinking, thinking about things like a production, unfortunately, you know, they're like, especially if they're TV oriented, there's no way they're going to take 20 minutes to read scripture, you know, they're like, I mean, I don't, I don't think they would. So we, we, we at our church, we have really good people who work on the order of worship and we have a lot of readings in between the songs from scripture and from, and then from catechisms and things too, you know, from Heidelberg catechism and other things. And I, I don't have anything to do with that. Just just the music minister does a good job with that. he does a, people, people find it refreshing. The reaction they get first, when they first come, they're like, this is like a. It's like, like a liturgical church. What are y'all doing? Y'all like read stuff together and things on the, you know, like, but then uh, usually people are like, wow, this is really nice to like read scripture together and, and confess the historic confessions of the church together. The Nicene Creed, the Chalcinet, to choose sections of that. And con- people feel connected with the, the, the church worldwide and the history of the church. And usually there, while there's an initial resistance to it, they, they, they come to like it a lot. Kenny talked about the value of hearing the text, longer sections of text, in multiple translations. So, in other words, not just reading it in the ESV or hearing it over and over again in the ESV, but hearing it in the NIV, and the ESV, reading it. And sometimes there's a, you, you get jarred, you hear something fresh when you read it in multiple. That's a good, good suggestion when you have a longer section rather than just cogitating over over the five verses over and over and over again. To, to read it in different versions. I think that's a great suggestion. And if you, if you read another language other than English, I, 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 I teach French, theological French. I read, I read French. I enjoy reading the Bible in French because sometimes, boom, something about just reading in another language, it's like part of your brain. Hear, it just hears things. So if you, if you do have some experience in another language, a Spanish or something else, that, that might um, help you hear it. You could preach about the flood in Spanish, deluge. I don't know. I don't speak Spanish. The uh, but I, I was remembering after in the break how uh, how we I think when a good thing I think when we did the flood because we went through the Old Testament last year. I think he, he started off by by having uh, on the PowerPoint um, pictures of children's Bibles because you know it's fascinating. Isn't it? all of them have the flood and it's all just a story about animals. And God saving the animals and cute animals and and that the this meaning of the flood, God judges wickedness, you know, and yet God's grace in saving Noah and his family is is lost. You know, it's it's just amazing how we do I mean children understand judgment. You know. We have we have one I think it's the big picture story bible, where they have the flood and it clearly emphasizes the judgment of God. And does someone else have this? The big picture? And like yeah yeah and it,
1: it's got some great pictures in there cuz they did do a great
0: job. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, they have they actually have the waters covering houses and things and they have little bitty stick people <laughs> floating and stuff. I mean, it's pretty graphic for a child's bible, you know, but but it is it it's uh I mean, it's like, wow, that's what happened. I mean, it was the world was destroyed. That's 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 really what happened. Um Thinking about how we're influenced, I just thought of something kind of random, but how we're influenced by the age that we're in and in interpretation. Philo, he was a Jewish interpreter around the first century. He, he went through he went through the book of Genesis explaining it and interpreting it. And you know, the dominant way to interpret Scripture in in that time, I have my email up here in case anyone wants to email me other questions or things, so I accidentally erased it, sorry about that. But if you want to email me, it's rplummer at spts.edu. You're welcome to email me any questions or follow-up kind of thing so but the uh, philo he, he uh he he writes about the book of genesis and he explains it you know text by text and remember the dominant way to approach literature at this time is allegory and so that's what he does and so in genesis i think it's genesis is it 11 or 9 it's genesis 9 isn't it where after the flood they they have uh it says Noah plant's a vineyard and then he gets drunk right and he and he says well the the literal meaning of this is too notorious. <laughs> so we can't go there so is this is talking about Noah's intellect and how he became sober in thought and philosophy. you know he totally philosoph philosophizes it, allegorizes it into where it's about um, intellect and and philosophy and so on. it's just interesting, but it's the reality actually I remember when my my daughter I told my daughter, who's seven, a few months ago, she's like, Daddy, what will you give me if I read through the whole Bible? And I said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, whatever I want? I'm like, whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. I said, assuming, you know, what a seven-year-old will want, you know, if you ask for a jet airplane, I'm not going to give that to you. But the, she's like, "Yeah, like a, a new American Girl doll? Sure, if you read the whole Bible, <laughs> No problem. Whatever you know, and of course she she only made it through about thirty chapters of Genesis. She's seven years old, you know, but 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 I remember when she was encountering these stories, she was like she would she'd be reading before she'd go to bed at night. She'd come downstairs. She goes, "Mama, it says Noah got drunk," you know, and then and then we're like, "Well, yeah, yeah, yeah well, yeah, we, yeah, what we did, we, we we suddenly became, we're like, we have to do something here." And so I was like, sweetie, you know, it's taking you a long time. It's going to take you a long time to get through the Bible. She's like, yeah. I said, Daddy can speed you up a little bit. I'm going to put some little sticky notes to tell you which chapters you can skip to kind of get on faster to your reward. So so that's what I had to do. I had to get sticky notes. I was like, you know, and I presented this like we're getting faster to the reward now because I was like, I don't want her to read about uh, exactly about Tamar or about about uh, the Shechemites and Dinah and, and you know, some of that other stuff. So I was like, that's not, well, that's she not. Got, she got 30
1: chapters. She probably read more than most of the people in church.
0: Yeah, yeah. She, true yeah. So um, she got a little bit, a little bit sidetracked. She started back again recently. So she's, she, she was just, yeah. So it's good. It's really good.